the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Warrant Officer Jerry Mapstone, OAM, joined the RAAF in 1966 and in 1967 became an airfield defence guard and was posted to South Vietnam. Now, on arrival in Vietnam, having previously led an Aussie life, Jerry was told that the weather was fine and there was only light to moderate ground fire. He was given the opportunity to become an Iroquois door gunner with nine squadron. His duties were to assist in medical evacuation, loading and unloading of stores and personnel, and to protect, by the use of twin M60 machine guns, his side of the aircraft. He flew missions such as sniffer missions, psychological warfare, leaflet dropping, VIP missions, command and control, special air service patrol insertions and extractions, and general hash and trash. The highlights of that time were flying in support of the Tet Offensive near Saigon and in the battles of fire support bases Coral and Balmoral. Jerry particularly enjoyed dust-offs as he felt that Nine Squadron did some great work retrieving soldiers and civilians from the battlefield and taking them to safety and to hospital. In early 1973, he again joined Nine Squadron, who'd returned from Vietnam. Nine Squadron was known as the Nomadic Ninth as they shifted from one place to another. Main tasking was army operations, search and rescue, and survey operations from Sumatra to Irian Jaya. Jerry also flew in Papua New Guinea with the Pacific Island Regiment. He flew in weather from the tropics to the snow. In 1974, he was involved in flood rescues all around Ipswich, Brisbane, and the areas right up to Toowoomba. The rescues consisted of rooftop rescues, ferrying people and goods to and from areas which were inundated and flying past our families who were trapped by floodwaters in the married quarters. Operations were often dangerous, but it was satisfying work. He was twice posted to the United Nations Emergency Force in Sinai, Egypt, And uh, there are various snippets to the life of a helicopter crewman worth investigating. Well, Jerry, thank you very much for your time. Uh, And you are from one very important part of the Royal Australian Air Force, helicopters. Yep. Why did you join the Air Force? Initially, I joined the Air Force uh, with the thought to being an instrument fitter. But then when I got to uh, Wagga after recruit training, I uh, decided I didn't want to live in a little shed somewhere on the airfield and I wanted to, to be more out there, if you like, in a sense. So I ended up going to Ambley and uh, I uh, trained as an airfield defence guard. Then I went to Vietnam and 
that's that's where I, I was was happiest in those early days in Vietnam or in Amberley. <laughs> well, at, at Amberley, and with with the knowledge that I was, you know, in in all uh, seriousness, probably going to end up in Vietnam because yeah. that was the way things were rotating at the time. Why did you want to get into the Air Force? What was the reason? It was not a particular thing. It was just you know I I wanted to expand the horizons and you know go and doing something, and I thought, well, you know, this is the, the pick of the three. In a machine that flies, what was your first experience once you've joined? Planes or was it helicopters? Planes. When I first joined, I'd been in the Air Force for about a year and I'd travel on a, a truck and a bus and a train, but nothing else. So uh, my first trip was from Brisbane to Tonsonut, uh, via the Philippines overnight and that was civil air and, and civilian clothing and you know the usual at that time I found the Philippines overnight Manila was, was pretty wild, it was like the wild west with people shooting each other in the streets and policemen ro- roaring around in little candy striped jeeps and things and I thought oh yeah this is great <laughs> Yeah. following day was interesting because the air movements people didn't alert us to the fact that there was actually a departure tax so people were selling watches and borrowing money off each other etc etc just to get out of the place anyway came into Tonsonut and uh, the usual talk on, on the, from the captain of the aircraft, weather's fine, runway so-and-so, etc, etc, light to moderate ground fire. And we all looked at each other and thought, hello, this is going to be interesting. So uh, we landed the Tonsonut and that was, at that time, the busiest airfield in the world, both wow. c- civil and military traffic. And they had a sniper at the end of the strip on most days, so it was all, you know, pretty exciting stuff. So what was your first flight where you were in charge of the aircraft? Oh, I was not in charge of the aircraft in the early days. As a gunner, I was the, the junior member of the crew. I'd been in Vietnam for about five five or six months and the opportunity to train as a gunner, as a helicopter gunner came up so uh, we started the training which wasn't overly long, it was a lot of it was on the job training. I'd worked with machine guns and things like that before so I, I knew about those and that was a lot of the role. As a junior member of the crew, the crewman is a senior member of the crew in the back and he pretty well directs and keeps an eye on my, op- my operations and things. I'm on the left hand side of the aircraft and my my responsibility is to assist the crewmen with all the duties, whether they be dust offsets in medical evacuation, you know, the delivery of uh, personnel and stores and various different roles that came up. We did a lot of unusual things, uh, leaflet dropping, psychological warfare. Yeah, I just stop on those things because I've seen that the titles I've seen, uh, there's a sniffer mission, the, uh, there's a pamphlet mission, there's an insertion and extraction mission. What's a sniffer mission? A sniffer mission is a machine that's developed and they strap it into the floor in the back with a like a horn that goes out to the side and it, it tests the air when you fly over a certain part of the jungle it, it measures the uh, amount of urine goodness gracious and so if there's a big concentration of urine like there's people there people there and probably underground and you know tunnels and things like that and whatever so the aircraft goes over and it calls the the measurements and 99 hot meant that it was a really hot one and then you bugged out and you either had gunships or fighters coming in behind you and they'd make a mess of the place i read a lot about nine squadron and five squadron can you just explain for someone who doesn't know anything about the Air Force what the differences between the two squadrons are? Because they're both helicopter squadrons, I believe. Five Squadron was training and operational within Australia and Nine Squadron was the overseas, as in Vietnam. So at no point would there have been five squadron participants in Vietnam? No. 
And before you actually got to Vietnam, I'm led to believe that you were told, look, Jerry, the weather's fine and there's only light fire. Who told you that? <laughs> I don't know, but I'll kill him if I can. <laughs> <laughs> that certainly wasn't the case when you landed. No, no, it was uh, was very different. Uh, after we landed and uh, this is in, in Saigon, we then travelled down to Vung Tau in the south, which is where we were going to be based. And at that time, the accommodation was off base in, in two villas. The Villa Anna was the officer's villa and the Villa Nok Hong was the airman's. Yep. And they were right by the sea side in uh, in Vung Tau and, and people say, oh, you know, typical Air Force, you know, villas and whatever. They were full of rats and cats and they were absolutely awful places. So we stayed there for a couple of months and then uh, we moved back on, we moved on to the American base, mainly for security because after you'd done the days flying, you'd get into a jeep and you'd drive through town and so you're a bit of a moving target. And a lot of the local Vietnamese were very anti and so we had people riding past and carrying on, you know, throwing things over the fence and things like that. There was a bit of a threat. Was it the HMAS Sydney that brought the helicopter Iroquois to Vietnam? Yes. Did you travel on that to get there or did they fly you in? No, I, I flew in. You flew in. Now, you've said what a sniffer mission is. What, were the, what was the pamphlet? Was that propaganda? It was propaganda, what they call Chu Hoi. In other words, they were encouraging uh, the, the enemy to, uh, you know, to surrender and to give information about their operations and so on. And so we'd drop all these leaflets out over the villages and uh, over the countryside. I've often wondered, I mean, we're talking about Vietnam, which is made up of Vietnamese. Now, yes, there was the Viet Cong, and yes, there was the non-Viet Cong. How difficult was it and how fr- threatening was it to distinguish who was VC and who wasn't? They had different uniform. It was probably Probably the, the most obvious thing. Their training was was more regular force rather than part time. So of a daytime you'd see a fellow in the paddy field, and of a nighttime he'd be the enemy. And with the NVA, they tended to be in bigger groups, and uh, they were a constant threat, if you like, rather than sort of the, you know, on and off. How important would you say retrospectively was the helicopter in Vietnam? Uh, it's often described as the helicopter war. The importance, I think, is, is just amazing. Um, to be wounded in the field and to be picked up and then taken to a, um, a, a hospital with a helipad and then straight into an operating theatre to save so many people. It also, uh, I guess, you know, it saved lives, but it also meant that they had a, a quicker recovery and uh, lesser, lesser long-term injuries and so on and so forth. I've often felt from the various people I've spoken to, like you, that as far as the Royal Australian Air Force is concerned, a helicopter person is a more hands-on person in the RAAF than a jet fighter or a, a Canberra flyer or or whatever. You are there hands-on. You're the face of the RAAF. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, well, when, when 9 Squadron came back and flew over the back fence at Ambly, most of the people on the base didn't know who they were, thought they were Army, because they had green helicopters. There was them and us in that sense. The main body of the Air Force regarded us as those helicopter people, you know, who worked with the Army most of the time and didn't have much to do with the Air Force. You know, we were very much appreciated but more so by army and navy in fact it's interesting because the the nine squadron badge the the crown on the badge is the naval crown it's the only air force squadron that has the naval crown and that's because in its its history it used to be 101 fleet cooperation squadron and when hmas sydney and other capital ships were sunk during the wars the Air Force crews that were doing catapult uh, mm. takeoffs and whatever, they went down with the ships. Tell us about the decision to actually arm the helicopters, because they weren't initially armed, were they, or were they? 
No, we used to use American gunships, uh, and uh, because we we started off, we only had eight helicopters in my first tour, and then towards the end of my first tour, they went to sixteen, and that was much more manageable than the eight. Uh, and the eight, of course, were the Bravo models, smaller models, which only carried five troops, uh, as opposed to the the Delta and Hotel, which carried seven. It made a big difference. Yeah, again, for our person who's listening who doesn't know the Bravo Delta Hotel, what are the differences across those three names in terms of helicopters, and and when did the the Bush Ranger get named? Uh, the Bravo was the uh, initial helicopter that we used at Fire Squadron for training, which was then sent to Vietnam as Nine Squadron, and we had uh, eight of those, and we had um, two Delta models, which were the the upgraded, the bigger version, if you like, which carried the seven troops and a bigger engine. And um, actually, I, I flew uh, one of those in '67, and the last time I flew it was in '84 with MFO, so it had been around quite a while. And the Bush Ranger? And the Bush Ranger. It was decided that we needed to have our own rather than relying on others, which I completely agree with. And so we started uh, borrowing and trading and carton of VB here for a minigun there, etc., etc., and, and built our own. And our armourers were, uh, you know, obviously the key people with that, and they designed what we needed. So your first experiences then in the helicopter is with Bravo. Yep. And that's on sniffer jobs, on pamphlet dropping jobs, etc., etc. So there's no armament at that stage. Oh, yeah, a machine gun on either side. How exposed is a helicopter in in that situation very exposed it, it's, it's got a, a thin covering on the outside of the aircraft which is you know just about that thin it's very very thin and it doesn't certainly doesn't stop anything we used to have we had a um, plate but we used to call it chicken plate and it was a, a supposedly to stop the first round from going through and then over that we had a flak vest which stopped it from spreading in that sense that, yes. that was roughly yeah. how it worked close calls do you recall any of those quite a few of them i was pretty fortunate uh, in my career as you know i, I stayed around for quite a while i tended to be uh, re- rather lucky whereas others weren't i guess i never got shot down in that sense um but uh, no I was, I was pretty fortunate but um the the fact that i was fortunate i think is uh, uh mainly because of the support that we had when we went in most of the time we had our guns on board and we had gunships either american or our own or we had fighter support you know overall i wouldn't say that we were very secure i think we were pretty lucky really in your experience, the relationship between the Americans with their gunships and the Australians and at the helicopter level, was that very cooperative and very friendly relationship? Oh, yes. Yeah, very much so. The Americans like working with us, as did the Australian Navy guys at the EMU flight. They had gunships and uh, quite often they, they were the gunships that were called in to assist. Can we just focus maybe on two particular instances, the Tet Offensive and Coral and Balmoral, because this year also happens to be the 54 anniversary of the Battle of Coral Balmoral. Let's start with the Tet Offensive. It's called Tet Offensive, is it not, because that's the Vietnamese New Year? Yes, that's correct. What did that entail? Tell us about it. Okay, uh, well, we moved to the south of Long Bin in Saigon and set up a little base there. <clears throat> we had the army guys operating and the, the thrust of it was to stop the Vietnamese from coming out of Saigon going south. This is the North Vietnamese Regiment. We were there for about a week and a half or thereabouts and, and, and while all this was happening, Saigon almost fell. You know, there was fighting in the streets and the embassy and so on and so forth and uh, it was uh, a lot of activity. There was a, a little village called Trang Bom uh, not far from there 
there and they levelled that to the ground because the VC had occupied the village and so on and so forth. We worked with the army battalions on, on various operations in that area and uh, there were quite a few losses. And that relationship then between army and you, not you personally, but was very close. Oh yes, yeah. Well it was all the time because you know, we took them everywhere pretty well and uh, we supported them in, in nearly all roles. Um, and you know, as I say, working with the army was, was, was pretty good stuff. I mean they were very organised. Did you fly the Bushranger during the Tet Offensive? Was it the Bushranger? I did a couple of sorties with them, but um, I preferred to stay on the slicks. When you fly on a slick, you can do hash and trash, and then you can change and do a dust-off, and then you might do various half a dozen different roles. So it was more interesting. The gunships, you know, rearm uh, and uh, go around, shoot them up, and, and come back and rearm and refuel and, and do it again. Wasn't that keen on that. The M60, when did that become part of the... And what is the M60, I'm sorry? I should be asking. The M60 is a machine gun, and uh, the original model was the M60B, the Brava, and, uh, and then we graduated to the, the Delta, the M60 Delta, which had a different sort of a grip, so you could use it just with one finger, which allowed you to use your mic and everything else. You had an M60 on both sides of the chopper? Yeah, both sides, and the gunships had uh, had double. They had two uh, machine guns on either side, and then they had miniguns, uh, which were capable of 6,000 rounds a minute, but derated to about four, because if you'd fired them with 6,000 rounds a minute, you'd just melt the barrels basically eventually so it just got too hot and the the two on either side now had they had a, a, a rate of fire of 550 rounds a minute so with a gunship you had 11 100 rounds on either side, plus your minis, plus your rockets. And he had eight 2.75 rockets, which were white phosphorus or uh, you know, explosives. Your gunship's a pretty well-armed piece of machinery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, they don't last long. If you uh, you, you press, the, press the button up front on the miniguns, and if you press it for too long, that's it, you're out of ammo because of the rate of fire. Rate of fire. Yes. And is that why they had to keep going back and getting... Re-armed, refueled. Yeah, refueled. Yes. I read somewhere, I can't remember who, maybe it was an American journalist or whatever, who said said that the Tet Offensive was a military failure for the Viet Cong, but it was a propaganda loss for the Allies. Does that make any sense? Yes, yeah, it does. Uh, the, the army battalions actually did a, um, a troop down to a tunnel in Saigon underneath Coochie, uh, and which is now, of course, famous for, you know, everybody who goes over there has got to have a look at the Coochie tunnels. Um, but uh, they found all the information there that they needed, and unfortunately they didn't use it well enough. Yeah, they, they nearly lost the whole thing. And that was the turning point, that many will say, for the war in Vietnam. That was the Tet Offensive, or there a little bit of it. What about Coral Balmoral? Because people always talk about the Battle of Long Tan and yep. etc. But the Battle of Coral Balmoral was a was a bigger conflict, a longer conflict, yep. and a more devastating conflict. What was your role or the helicopter's role in that? Okay, we sent I think it was four crews up to uh, an American base, U.S. Army base called Phu Loi, which was just to the southwest of uh, those two fire support bases, Coral and Balmoral. We initially went uh, on to uh, Phu Loi and uh, we had accommodation etc there and our role was to support the battalions at uh, those fire support bases. At the base just outside where we were uh, accommodated they had a, a battery of field guns, 155s which are the much bigger cannons and uh, I think there was about 20 of those and um, I remember it was an army pilot who I have since uh, run across several times and lives locally and uh, he said to me uh, let's go and have a look and see if we can find the, the flash 
flashes from the, the rockets that were going into the base because they were under fire. So we got airborne on a Cessna and I was using a starlight scope to see if I could find the flashes. And uh, initially I couldn't and he said, oh, you, you take over and I'll have a look. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So here I am, never flown one of these things before. So we staggered around for a bit until he found what he wanted. Then he reported back and of course the artillery started going in. But the interesting part was the, the artillery because they fired what they call a contact mission one after the other and then just kept going round and round. Each time they'd, they'd fire one of these cannons, the whole building would shake like that. Nobody was uh, you know, awake at that point and we all uh, went across and we started doing the, you know, the, the workups, uh, the dust-offs for the guys who were injured, etc. And uh, It's a medical evacuation and uh, it's an American term that uh, we've lived with and it's a, a call sign. Once you use the dust-off call sign, you get priority as you do with rescue call signs here in Australia in the civil sense. Yeah, so, uh, and that's, that's what you call for when, you know, you've had injuries and so on and so forth. How would you differentiate the importance of the role of the helicopter in terms of a dust-off and actually going in as an attack commodity? Which was the more challenging? Which was uh, the more important? Uh, the dust-off was more important because you were uh, hopefully going to save a life or at least uh, you know, uh, get injured people out of the battlefield and into you know, uh, good care. It was also the most um, hazardous because uh, generally you were busy you know, getting people on board, etc., etc. With guns firing around you? And you tended to be in the hover longer because you were, you know, waiting for the guys to get things set up so you could bring them up into the aircraft and so on and so forth. What was the capacity that you could carry of, of wounded in one helicopter? Usually just two or three. It depends on the wounds, whether they were ambulatory or non-ambulatory. In other words, whether they could sit on a seat or whether they were lying wow. into a stretcher. There was a setup that we used to use and you could set up six stretchers in the back. It was never used over there simply because you couldn't use the hoist, etc. And it just took up so much room. So uh, because of the number of aircraft we had and the type of operations, it was easier to use just a couple. Tell us about the different crew in a seven-person helicopter. Just tell us what each of the roles of each of the crew were. Oh, okay. Well, the captain of the aircraft is overall in command regardless of rank. Um, the co-pilot is, is, is the co-pilot who's just there to assist and he might be doing the radios or he might fly while the captain's doing something else and so on and so forth, working as a crew. And, uh, and this is where it was really good to work with these guys because everybody knew their role and everybody could assist with each other's role. So everyone on a helicopter could have been the pilot if necessary. Like if the co-pilot and pilot got shot, there'd be someone else. The standard procedure if the, the co-pilot or the, or, the, or the captain was shot, there were red handles on the back of the seat. You could lift the seat, bring him back and then go and assist whoever was still flying and so on and so forth. So we've got two identified. And then you've got the crewman who sits on the right-hand side is responsible for the rest of the aircraft really and, and at, at a certain point on the way in to, into the hover he takes over from the pilot because the pilot can only see in front. The gunner of course on the left hand side gives clearance on that side so that you don't run into something on that side. So uh, yeah it's a multi-role aircraft and everybody has an opportunity to, uh, to you know, use each other's role. You mentioned the gunners on the left, the person on the right is the crewman. At what point did we have guns on both sides and, and what did that do to the individuals with numbers within the aircraft? Oh, OK. There was always guns on both sides, on slicks and gunnies. The army guys, uh, the number of guys, there was obviously a patrol leader who usually sat on, on the outside and was first out and, and then could make sure that all of his guys were out, etc., along with working with the crew. What was the relationship between helicopter and forward air controller, FAC, the one that the poor person is sitting in the plane that wasn't armed in any way, shape or form, actually identifying? What was that 
relationship like? Well, it was interesting because they, they had their role, which was to, to sit and, and uh, well, to spot and to drop smoke for the fighters and so on and so forth, and that was their role as forward air controllers. Uh, we would come across them and um, by their call sign, we'd know that they were Australian or American or whatever. Uh, we did rescue a couple of those who, who got uh, shot down, but they were with a different group. Uh, mainly, mainly the, the fat guys work with US Air Force or US Army and in different locations. So was there communication between the FAC and the helicopter pilot? Not so much. Uh, I mean, we used to used to chat with them. They, they'd give you an idea of what was happening on the ground and so on by way of direction as, as a controller, but uh, uh, not a lot of uh, contact, I thought. And what about communication between base and pilot out, uh, helicopter out in the, in the field? Uh, yeah, yeah, we had a, a bank of radios and, uh, you know, we... Uh, we had the army on one channel and then our own people on the other channel and, and then air to air and then uh, into communication within so the So a aircraft. multiplicity of communication oh, channel. Yeah, yeah, you could have four radios going at once and the, the guy's trying to fly and do everything else and make decisions. It's pretty heavy stuff, yeah. I know I've said it and you said yes and no to it. I still feel that in Vietnam, the helicopter had a far more hands-on role than in the RAAF, than the, jet, the fighter pilot, the pilot of the bomber of the Canberra or the pilot of the, the Caribou or whatever. You were hands-on. Oh, definitely, yes. But they, you could say that they were, in, in a way, a single role and we were multiple role in that sense. What is your best and worst memory of your time in Vietnam? as a helicopter person? Well, probably my worst was going uh, into a battle situation and bringing out three or four bodies uh, and that sort of stuff. The question that was always asked by the young soldiers when you got them on board, when they, uh, particularly in mine incidents, because the mines were set off and they, they'd activate around about waist high and they'd always want to know, you know, whether their manhood was still intact. And you always you always said yes, regardless. A horrible situation, war of any kind. And what about your best memory? Coming home, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Coming home, now that's interesting because coming home really wasn't coming home. It was coming back to a community that really was not friendly to the Vietnam veteran. No, I, I came back and I was posted to uh, Williamtown. I was about the only guy that had the, the little silver brevet and, and the two medals because most other people were you know, involved with the fighters and so on and so forth, the grand crew, maintenance, etc, etc. And so you sort of stuck out a little bit. But um, people didn't really know much about what was going on over there. They sort of weren't really told. I mean, they'd read something in the paper or whatever, but, you know. Were you involved in the, in the final days when it actually ended and we were told to withdraw? No. I, I was there in 67, 68, and then in 70. And, uh, of course, the withdrawal was in 72 or thereabouts. Yeah. Although I have a friend of mine who was with detached S and that was 75 when they brought everybody out of the embassy. What happens when you come home? What did you do? Went back to back to being an airfield defence guard at Williamtown whilst I awaited for the uh, the crewman's course because at that stage I decided that you know I wanted to uh, to stay with helicopters. So I spent um, most of '68 in Williamtown and then early '69 I went to Canberra to do the crewman's course. That was held up for a while because we had two major incidents. We had uh, two crashes while we were undergoing our training. So what was supposedly uh, about an eight-week course ended up being four or five months. Anyway. After that, I, I, um, I got married, uh, knowing that I was going back uh, for a second tour. So Two. back to Vietnam. Uh, that, was, that was quite common uh, because you sort of felt like a fish out of water in, in many ways. And the other thing, of course, is that having said that I wanted to stay with helicopters, that was a natural thing to, to go back because of numbers and things like that. That feeling of like a fish out of water, no doubt 2022 with PTSD and all the problems of mental health, that being detached from 
the brotherhood, sisterhood or family of the RAAF, the Army, Navy, whatever, the moment you step away from that, you lose the family, that close contact. So do you think there's a, an answer to that? Do you think there's a solution to that? Uh, yeah, I think Defence has probably looked at that from what I understand um, and they're, they're trying to ease the, the, the pressure on people leave, leaving the transition, leaving the service. Um, there's a lot more can be done. In, in the old days, was that was it, I'll see you later. You go... Back to 9 Squadron in, what, 73? No, 70. 1970. Why is it referred to as the Nomadic Ninth? When we uh, came back from Vietnam and went to Amberley, they didn't really know that we were coming for whatever reason, and all of a sudden 16 helicopters come over the back fence and they said, well, where are we going to put you? And I uh, was in in, in the crewman role at that stage, being posted from Williamtown up, and uh, we got the old fire station, which was full of PCBs and things like that, so took a while to clear all that out and uh, eventually we had it all pretty well organised the way we wanted and then they wanted to shift us down with the Chinook Squadron to uh, to 12 Squadron which was down the other end of the base etc so we the Nomadic Ninth. Where are we going next? Yeah, where are we going next? So what then rejoining the Ninth um, what were your, the roles then? I believe there was a lot of flood work involved? There was. At that stage there were n- not many uh, if any civilian helicopters around the place so the role was, was pretty well uh, multiplicity we did everything basically every year that we'd have floods down around Moree and places like that before they built the levees yeah. and it used to just annually flood so we did a lot of a uh, lot of uh, fodder drops and uh, rescuing people off properties and that must have been like without the gunfire must have been like being back in Vietnam rescuing yeah yeah Again, the helicopter, the face of the RAAF. Oh, that's it. And we used to do the, all the you know, civilian air, uh, aircraft crashes and things like that. And uh, even road accidents. Uh, they, we did pretty well whatever came along. Does this predate then the uh, ambulance having its own helicopter and yes, yeah. police having their own helicopters? Exactly. You were it. You were them, all of them. That's right, yeah. So if there was a major accident on a highway, etc., it would be an RAAF helicopter that would turn up, yep. bringing in medical people, etc.? Yes. What's it like flying a helicopter in gale force winds or in bad weather? Pretty scary. Yeah, I remember doing uh, some post-cyclone recovery and, and the... In said, Darwin? No, in uh, uh, Queensland. Queensland, yeah. And uh, the pilot said, uh, we're sort of... We run out of uh, visual clues. And we're not really quite sure where we are. So I said, I'll oh, drop it down about 20 feet. So I said, we're at such and such. And he said, how did you know? I said, I just read it off the railway station sign. <laughs> the joke was that we used to use BP roadmaps because they were better than most. That's something another helicopter pilot said in a flood, trying to hover above a house. You didn't have any cues. Why is a reference necessary to hover? Well, because you can't tell whether you're moving forward, etc. And you have got to rely on your crewman who tells you that you're either... You know, you know, stationary or you're moving left or right or whatever, he'll tell you to move two foot right and you move two foot right and so on because it's just so organised. I'm not a helicopter pilot so please help me. Isn't there something within the helicopter that I'm now in hover mode? No, it's no. all manual. It's all manual. Yeah, and, and you don't just sit there and, and hold the stick level because it doesn't work that way. It's constantly moving to stop it from moving left, right and back and forth. And you don't have that sense of movement in the chopper itself? Yeah, you do to a degree, but when when you're close up and when you're in a situation where you've got a couple of trees there and a couple of trees there, or a building or the mast of a ship, and that's where the crew works together to achieve the result. So really, unlike a 
jet fighter pilot or a pilot in a domestic airliner, it is totally reliant on everybody in that helicopter. Everybody has a role and it's the same role. What was the work with the United Nations in Sinai? It was pretty interesting. Pete Ring was one of my bosses over there. We had four helicopters initially, so we had, I think, seven or eight pilots and four crewmen. Our role was to look after all of the uh, various different contingents who were all around the Sinai Desert between uh, Egypt on the canal where we were in Ismailia. Uh, right up until the Israeli border, and including the buffer zone, which was in between. Navigating in the desert is, is quite difficult. Well, is that, again, field of reference? Yeah, very much so. But uh, looking, looking at, uh, you know, when you're navigating, you're looking at, uh, you know, features like hills and rivers and so on sure. and so forth. So what they had to do was uh, get 44-gallon drums painted white, and they had the, the, the numerical sequences like, uh, you know, uh, November 6th was the six drums north on, the, on that line or whatever. Wow. So you'd work it from there. But it was was very interesting. And uh, we did day and night rescues and things like that in support of all the other units. So in setting out, was that the brief? You're involved only in rescue? Or, or? Oh, no, no. Our main role was uh, to you know, uh, take observers, uh, UN observers, and to count tanks and missiles and so on and so forth on various different um, areas on both sides, both the Egyptians and the Israelis. Unlike Vietnam, were mm. you uh, still in fear and trepidation of potential being shot at? Yeah, we used to go low level as much as we could so that we could fly under the radar of missiles and so on and so forth. So you were a target? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. And we were unarmed. And you're, un- yes, of course, you don't have the M60 anymore, the twin M60 as you did in the Iroquois in, in Vietnam. Uh, what about, you, you were the colour warrant officer, I believe, for 9 Squadron. Can you relate that story for me? Uh, for 5 Squadron. The new Air Force flag or uh, colour was being presented by the Queen in, in Richmond. And so I was fortunate to be the, the warrant officer for that. Wow. You have a, a flight lieutenant who uh, actually has the flag, then you have two flight sergeants or sergeants, and then a warrant officer at, at the rear as a, as a group. And, uh, yeah, so it was, was pretty interesting. I think it was the only time I've ever been on a parade where we all landed on the same foot. When 5 Squadron uh, uh, was disbanded, uh, I was the colour warrant officer for the final parade here in Canberra, which was, you know, a great honour here. Excuse me, keep on referring to our friend who's listening to you who may not be part of the RAAF, but what is a warrant officer? What is the role of a warrant officer? Warrant officer is the, the senior non-commissioned officer, and as such, uh, he has a role uh, in between the, the two levels of uh, in non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers. And usually it's uh, the this most senior role, whether you're in a hangar or you're in a squadron, whatever, your your it's the top of your trade or your proficiency. So it's a pretty important position to have. Yes, oh yeah. And are you advisor to also to the person in charge of that squadron or an officer? Is there an officer above you in that you are directly in communication with that person and the rest of the rest of the squad? Usually you have a pretty good working relationship with the, the senior officers and the, the CO. Yes. Jerry, fascinating talking to you, particularly about Vietnam. I want to thank you for that. And I think, you know, we should more as Australians be talking about it. And hopefully we will be this year and next year as we reach the anniversary of uh, of those important battles and also at the end of the war. Yeah. But what is your, in your career in the Royal Australian Air Force, what is your long lasting and best memory? That's a very interesting question. Um, I, I suppose being promoted to warrant officer uh, was, was probably the, the peak of things. But there, 
I think the fact that I, I managed to actually get there uh, is uh, really down to the, the, the wonderful people I work with. And, uh, you know, uh, had it not been for them, I may not be sitting here talking to you. Is that Esprit de Corps really much part of the Royal Australian Air Force? It is a family. Oh, yeah. It's a team. Yeah. It's not an I. No, very much so. I want to thank you particularly for your work in Vietnam, your contribution to the history of the second oldest Air Force in the world, and as I said to others, probably the best given the size of our population. So thank you for everything, and thank you for the privilege of being able to chat today. Thank you. Cheers. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.